Yes, indeed. So if there's one takeaway for Cut the Crap listeners out there, it's this. If you can, avoid going to the hospital or having a serious medical appointment in the afternoon. If you look at what happens in medical care in the afternoons, it is alarming. Uh, so some, here are some horrifying factoids here. Uh, anesthesia errors are four times more likely it, in procedures that begin at 3 than those that begin at 9 a.m. Uh, if you look at uh, endoscopists finding polyps in colonoscopies, they find half as many polyps in afternoon colonoscopies as in morning colonoscopies, even with the same population. Hand washing inside of hospitals deteriorates significantly in the afternoon. Doctors more likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics in the afternoon, fueling the rise of superbugs. So uh, over and over again in the afternoons, it's often a parade of horrors in um, in medicine and in, and in healthcare. Yeah, it's, it's alarming. But as you say, Ryan, you know, breaks can be uh, a really important antidote to that. What is going on, all my friends out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation? Yours truly, Ryan Caligiuri. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week I'm bringing you a book. I'm reading that book, condensing it down to its core golden nuggets, bringing the author on the show, having a conversation with them about the golden nuggets, just here every single week, trying to save you a little bit of time. Again, thank you so much for everybody who has already provided a ranking and a review of the show. If you haven't done that yet, get online, whatever platform you're listening on, rate and review the show. And once you do that, take a little screen capture of that and send it to my email. New email, it's podcast at ryancalajuri.com. If you send it there, I'll get it and I'll make sure you're entered into the draw every single quarter for a brand new prize. Last quarter, we gave away a brand new MacBook Air. This quarter, not too sure we're going to give away yet, but it's also going to be a kick-ass prize, so definitely get your entries in. Very simple. Just provide me a ranking and review. Send it to me by email. Done deal. Before I kick off this episode, I just got to say we hit a milestone this week with Cut the Crap Podcast. This is the 100th episode for Cut the Crap Podcast. We've been going at it for about two years now, and it's quite the accomplishment to me to say that um, I stuck through it. We kept going. And despite the times where I was like, I'm not too sure why I'm doing this. Do I want to continue doing this? I'm glad that I kept going because through those tough times, you know, as episode two, we talk about the dip. I went through the dip and I'm glad I did because it gave me an opportunity to truly connect with a a wide array of different individuals, whether it's authors, people who have um, helped publish books, people who read the books, people who have gone through and executed on things taught from the books. It's just been a great opportunity for me to connect with a great number of people, and I'm so blessed, so grateful to have had the opportunity to do that, and I can't wait for the next 100, 200, 300, 400, hell, we're going to go up to thousands of these because I'm not stopping. I'm having too much fun doing this, and I know that you're enjoying the episode, so um, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for sticking through with me for all 100 episodes for some of you folks out there listening, and uh, if you're new to Cut the Crap Podcast, then I can't wait for you to see what's coming up on the next 100 episodes in this journey. So again, thank you so much. I'm just very happy that we've hit this milestone and um, on to the next 100. But for this episode, I'm very happy to bring on our guest, Dan Pink. He's the author of When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. He's a New York Times bestselling author of also two other books, Drive to Sell as Human. The man is a beast. He's written a number of different books that have done so well and have taught us so much I remember reading Drive many, many years ago and learning about the importance of autonomy 
mastery, purpose, those important factors that are absolutely critical for people to have in the workplace in order to be feel, uh, truly feel fulfilled. And there's so many great takeaways that Dan Pink has shared with us, has shared with the world. And I'm so excited, so honored to have him on Cut the Crap podcast as he's launching this book. He just launched it last week. And so to get him on the show so quickly, it's a true honor. And again, a true testament to the audience that we're building, to the content that we're putting out, to the quality of content, and the fact that we're attracting such awesome authors who want to be on the show promoting their books. So again, I'm very excited to get Dan Pink on the show. And I can't wait to break into this book with you. This, to me, was one of my most favorite episodes. Um, We did have a little bit of an audio issue in the very beginning. If you overlook that for the first few minutes, um, it's a great interview. Dan uh, ended up getting on a landline and we fixed up the problem. But it was a great interview. Tons of great takeaways. So get the pen out, get that pad of paper out, and definitely start taking some notes because some really great takeaways in here. But enough jibber-jabber from me. Everybody, without further ado, this is When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing by Dan Pink. We'll catch you back here on the end of the episode. Enjoy. My friend Dan Pink. Dan, how you doing? Ryan, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on the show. So, Dan, before we get into the podcast and we start talking about the book, when for people who don't know you, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, I'm a writer, and I, I write books that really that that, that typically use uh, science, uh, social science, to help us work better and live better. Um, so, I wrote a book, as you mentioned, called Drive about the science of motivation. Another one about called A Whole New Mind about the changing skills that are necessary in the workplace. One about uh, selling and persuasion called sales human, and now look at the latest one, which is all about timing. So this book, when you say it's not a how-to book, but it's more of a when-to book, what does that mean? Tell us what that means. Because oh. I was making all kinds of when decisions myself, so everything from things like when in the day should I exercise to when should I abandon a project that's not working, and I realized I was making those decisions in a pretty haphazard way. Um, Uh, and I wanted to make them in a more systematic way, I started looking at some of the research and found that there was this mountain of research out there uh, that gave us ways to make systematically better uh, when decisions in our life. And, you know, we get a lot of instruction about how to do stuff. Uh, We focus a lot on what to do. Many of your listeners probably right now have a to-do list Mm -hmm. on their desk. Uh, But we give short shrift to this question of when should we do stuff. And uh, it's really, it, it ends up being both, something that matters hugely to our performance and our well-being. Um, and we can make those decisions in a way that we're not just making it up, where we actually have evidence to guide us to make those decisions better or smarter. Yeah, timing is an important topic and I, maybe one that we don't think too much about. And I'm sure, you know, as many others days are who are listening right now, they're filled up with just different types of tasks, administrative tasks, yeah. creative tasks, tasks that require me to be more analytical. So you say that the day has a hidden pattern in it, a peak, a trough, and a rebound. Talk to us about those different segments and what kind of tasks and thinking we should do in those areas. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's an absolutely key point. So what, what the research shows is that we tend to move through the day in three stages. There's a peak, a trough, and a rebound. Now, most of us move through the day in that order. So peak in the morning, trough in the early afternoon, and then a rebound late afternoon and, and early evening. And what the research shows is that we're better at certain types of tasks, just as you say, Ryan, certain types of tasks at different kinds of times of day. So, um, so let's take the peak, which, again, for most of us is, is the morning. For, for people who are night owls, it goes in the reverse order, so their peak is, toward the, is much later in the day. But in our peak, we're better at doing 
analytic work. Now, what is analytic work? It, analytic work is work that requires vigilance, focus, heads down, locked in, eliminate distractions. You're writing a legal brief. You're, or you're auditing a financial statement. You are bashing out some important lines of code. Um, for that kind of, we do that work better in our peak because we're more vigilant. We can keep out distractions. Now, during the trough, which for all, almost all of us is the early afternoon, the trough isn't good for very much. Uh, our performance, our mood dips considerably. So in that period, we're better off doing our administrative work, answering routine emails or filing or doing all the kind of garbage that seems to collect in a day. The third stage, uh, the recovery period, is actually a really interesting period because our mood is higher than during the trough, but we're less vigilant than during the peak. And that combination is actually really interesting. Um, it, uh, that sort of combina- letting in a few distractions, which we do during the recovery, is actually pretty good for creative work. You don't want to be too hyper-focused to do brainstorming or creative work. You end up eliminating things you know, that you should actually be considering. So we're better off doing what are called insight tasks, kinds of creative work, later in the day. And what, what this mountain of research has found is that if we're just a little bit more intentional about moving the right task to the right time, we can do better. Time of day explains about 20% of the variance in how human beings perform on cognitive tasks, the kinds of things that we do on the job. And so, you know, 20% doesn't mean the timing is everything, but it means it's a really big thing. And, and all of us can get a little extra advantage if we simply are more intentional about these when questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. So here's the thing that I found was interesting was in the trough time, again, that's, I don't want to call it a dead zone, but we'll just call it a dead zone for, for, for lack of <laughs> a better word. You call it a dead zone because <laughs> some people die during that period, so it is a dead zone. <laughs> that's where I kind of wanted to get to here was that I think it's very interesting when you talk to us about the, the trough. But then you start talking about the science of breaks, the importance of breaks and to maximize the quality of my break. And so before you do that, you kind of set it up for me. Talk to us about the hospital of doom. Mm, Yes, indeed. So if there's one takeaway for Cut the Crap listeners out there, it's this. If you can, avoid going to the hospital or having a serious medical appointment in the afternoon. If you look at what happens in medical care in the afternoons, it is alarming. Uh, so some, here are some horrifying factoids here. Uh, anesthesia errors are four times more likely it, in procedures that begin at 3 than those that begin at 9 a.m. Uh, if you look at uh, endoscopists finding polyps in colonoscopies, they find half as many polyps in afternoon colonoscopies as in morning colonoscopies, even with the same population. Hand washing inside of hospitals deteriorates significantly in the afternoon. Doctors more likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics in the afternoon, fueling the rise of superbugs. So uh, over and over again in the afternoons, there's often a parade of horrors in, um, in medicine and in, and in healthcare. Yes, yeah, it's, it's alarming. But as you say, Ryan, you know, breaks can be uh, a really important antidote to that. So it's interesting. So when we're talking about breaks, what we do, what kind of what kind of breaks are, are you talking about here? Like, you know, it, give me an idea of what a break is to kind of maybe re-energize myself to bring focus. Yeah, no, that's a, yeah, that's a really really good point uh, because what, what's what what this research on breaks has shown is not only should we be taking um, more breaks, but we should be taking certain kinds of breaks, and these breaks need not be long. We're not talking about returning to a three hour. Mm. Spanish siesta where you go home and take a nap and have a giant meal or, you know, two-hour martini-soaked lunches or anything like that. We're talking about, rel- you, know, um, you know, basically anything matters. One of the principles of, of effective breaks is that something beats nothing. Mm. So five-minute break, ten-minute break, 
in some cases, even a micro break of a couple of minutes can be very effective. So we know that something beats nothing. Uh, one of the things that's interesting in this material is that we know that social breaks are better than solo breaks, mm. even for introverts. There's something about being with somebody else that can be more restorative if we can choose who that person is. We know that uh, moving is better than being stationary. So if you can move around during your break, take a walk, that's effective. We know that nature is incredibly replenishing in ways that are really, to me at least, really mm. surprising. So being outside, seeing trees, seeing grass. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that, um, and this is really important in our age of smartphones, we know that fully detached beats semi-detached, that, um, that a break has to be a break. So if you go out for a nature walk with your nose in your Instagram feed, that doesn't count. <laughs> uh, you really have to be fully detached. And if we do that, and again, it goes back to what we were talking about before, if you're intentional about it, um, you can, it can make a world of difference. And one of the things that I do myself now, having looked at this research, is that every day I make a break list. In the afternoon, I write down two breaks during the, during the afternoon that I'm going to take. Uh, I schedule them. And, you know, they're pretty modest for me. It's a walk around the block or, you know, bringing, I mean, I lead a very exciting life, bringing somebody to the post office. And, um, and I find them extraordinarily helpful. And, and I was someone, I'm a convert on that because I was someone who very rarely took breaks. I, I liked to power through. I thought that was the way to do it. It's interesting because most people today, when they're taking their break, what do you see them doing? They're, their head's down, their nose is deep in their phone, and you're saying yeah. that's, that's not a break because you're still, I guess, very stimulated by what you're looking at on the phone. You're not giving your brain a chance to relax and open up a little bit. So there's a good takeaway for everybody. You know, When you're at work today, you're listening at work, take a minute, take away your devices, get yourself out of there. If you have the ability to go outside and be in nature, go outside, be in nature, get your best friend at work, go outside, have a quick break, have that coffee break, what have you. You know, what, what kind of results can somebody expect? Like what, by doing that, why would I do that though, Dan? What's, what's the benefits of that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so what you see is, is you see a whole array of benefits. You see uh, enhanced productivity, you see uh, enhanced creativity, you see a higher sense of both uh, physical and emotional well-being. When you start instituting these things, let's go back to that hospital of doom. Um, I, I spent some time at the University of Michigan Medical Center, and one of the things they're doing in surgeries now is, you know, stepping away from the table, taking a break, making sure everybody's on the same page. Mm -hmm. If you look at one of the antidotes to the the hand washing problem inside of hospitals, one of the ways to prevent that massive deterioration in hand washing in the afternoons is simply to give nurses more breaks and particularly social breaks. Uh, so, you know, and again, we don't have to, we don't have to go crazy here. I mean, we're really talking, you know, 10 minute break, 15 minute break, but you have to do it the right way. You have to, you know, leave your phone behind, go out, if, as you say, go mm -hmm. outside, take a walk, just be intentional about having that just detachment, even for that short amount of time. And, and again, this is, I think what the core of all this is, is and, and I'm a convert here, as I said, the core of all this is how we even think about breaks. So I always thought that, I had it completely wrong. I always thought that amateurs took breaks and professionals don't. But it's the exact opposite. Professionals take breaks. It's the amateurs who don't take breaks. That's interesting. So the professionals take breaks. The amateurs don't take breaks. Again, the paradigm before was the opposite. Now, let's talk about something else. Um, if you can take a break, let's say you can take a break. If you can take a break, maybe you can take a nap. 
So sleep is becoming mm. a topic that many people are talking about these days. You know, Erin yeah. Huffington has talked in, in depth about the importance of sleep to her. So talk to us about the power of naps, because if somebody who naps on the job, I might look at them as a slacker. You're taking a nap on the job, but you're saying <laughs> that taking a nap is actually a good thing. Yeah, it can be. And, you know, and I think that your point about sleep is really well taken. In my view, what we have now with breaks is that breaks are where sleep was 15 years ago. 15 years ago, someone who pulled an all-nighter, who talked about how little sleep he got, was considered a hero. And now, because the science of sleep has emerged, we know that person is a fool. And I think breaks are in the same place. Um, the science of breaks are in the same place, that we're realizing that breaks are not a deviation from performance. They're part of performance. And naps are one kind of break. Uh, what's interesting about the research on naps, which is, which is powerful, is that the best kind of nap is really, really short. This blew me away as someone who had nap, you know, tried napping before and hated it because I woke up feeling groggy. I woke up feeling ashamed of myself. And... And the best naps are really between 10 and 20 minutes long, hmm. a very, very short. What you do with those is you get all of the benefits of a nap without any of what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, boggy feeling you get if you sleep a little bit too long. And in fact, the ideal nap in many cases, is, is which I've started doing, is a, kind of a peculiar kind of nap where, here's what I do at least. So... Let's say, I, let's say I didn't get much sleep the night before and I want, to take a, I want to take a brief nap to restore. What I will do is I will have a cup of coffee first. As weird as that sounds, have a cup of coffee first. Then I, will, then I set my phone alarm, my phone, uh, or my phone timer, countdown timer is set for 23 minutes. I'll hit that phone timer. I'll put on some headphones, maybe even an eye mask, and just sit back in a chair and um, close my eyes and try to go to sleep. And... At, after 23 minutes, that timer will go off. It usually means I can usually fall asleep in about seven minutes mm -hmm. or so, mm -hmm. eight minutes. So that gives me like 15, 16 minute nap, which is really in the sweet spot. But what's even better is that the alarm at 23 minutes wakes me up and that caffeine that I drank is about to enter my bloodstream. It takes about right. 25 minutes for caffeine to enter the bloodstream. So you get a double whammy. You get the restorative power of the nap and then layered on top of it is that caffeine hit. And this is what people call, I love the word, I didn't come up with it, but I love it anyway, a nappuccino. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a good takeaway. I like that. And you know, I, I think Nappuccinos for everyone. Nappuccino. I'm telling you, it's got to be on Starbucks, uh, Starbucks menu coming up now. It's a great idea. Great idea. And I think it's something. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking that Starbucks is going to have that and like have little like sleeping pods in their, <laughs> in their stores. Man, who like, knows? Like have a nappuccino, you know, to charge you like, like $11 for a hit of coffee and a little sleeping pot. I like it. Dan, let's get on the phone with Eric Schmidt right now. We got a good idea. We got it. We got, we got the scoop. <laughs> That's awesome. So let's, let's switch gears here a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about chronotypes. Each mm -hmm. one of us has a chronotype, a personal pattern mm -hmm. of circadian rhythms that influences our, our physiology and our psychology. Yeah. So for people out there, um, tell us, who, who, well, for people who don't know too much about what chronotypes are, maybe get into a little bit more detail about what it is and why they're so important. Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's really just our, you know, what's our, are, are, we, are we the kind of people who go to sleep early and wake up early or the kind of people who go to sleep late and wake up late? And, uh, you know, are we in the popular parlance, are we larks or are we owls? And what the research shows is about 15% of us are strong larks, strong morning people. About 20% of us are strong owls. Most of us are kind of in the middle, what I call, what I call third birds. And, and that, um, 
you know, and, there's, and it, it changes over time. So people who are between about 14 and 24 become very, very hourly. Um, their, their, their pattern shifts for later in the day, sometimes by two, even three hours. Um, but there's, there's not, you know, it's, it's pretty much ingrained in who we are and there's not a huge amount we can do with it. What we need to know is, is where we are on the, where we are on the spectrum and it affects that pattern of the day. So for people who are larks or in the middle, like me, I'm in the middle, uh, what I call a third bird, we generally move through the day at peak trough recovery. So peak in the morning, trough in the early afternoon, recovery later in the day. However, about you know, one-fifth of us are, are owls, and they have a very different pattern. They tend to move through the day, recovery, trough, peak. Hmm. And unfortunately for those owls, um, most of the corporate world, at least, is configured against them. Uh, the world is built really for larks and to some extent for third birds, and owls are at a huge, huge disadvantage. Hmm. Can you change who you are, or, or are you stuck with your current type forever? Well, that's a good question. Um, and and you, you, your, your, your chronotype changes over time. For, so, for instance, you know, if, you, if you look at the span of our lives, little kids tend to be very larky. Mm. And then when they hit about 14, they become much more owly. And then most of us, after about 24, we begin to become, over time, as we age, you know, larkier, um, you, know, you know, ever for more sure. larky. But... But um, in general, um, there's not a lot. There's, there's, there's not a lot you can do. I mean, mm. some people just have, you know, programmed into their, 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 their genes mm -hmm. um, a propensity to wake up later and, and go to sleep later. And even though that might change for themselves over time, uh, there, you know, there are plenty of people who are these night owl types. And yeah. what's interesting is that if you look at the behavior, if you look at some of the personality attributes of larks and owls, I mean, larks tend to be a little bit more extroverted. They tend to be um, pretty conscientious. Um, they tend to be pretty organized, whereas owls are less that, but owls actually uh, often will test higher on intelligence tests, higher on creativity. Hmm. Uh, they're also more prone to, um, you know, you know, problems like... Um, uh, addiction and depression and things like that as well. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I, fi I find that interesting because it's one thing that I do, and we'll, we'll talk maybe a little bit about this afterwards, but I, um, I I wake up early, and I'm that morning person. So when I read it, I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm a lark because I love the mornings. I wake up at 5 a.m., and I have mm. energy. And people say, man, how do you have so much energy first thing in the morning? And I'm like, well, I trained myself to do that. Well, I kind of did, but I kind of didn't because I always yes and I, no. yeah. I, I woke up early all the time. Like people need their, you know, their 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 deep sleep, and I need my sleep as well too. But I wake up early all the time, and I have so much energy first thing in the morning. Get my workouts in in the morning, and um, you know, for me, that's that's my time. So it was very interesting just to have that awareness of the different types. And you know, for some of my friends, I said, you know, you guys got to try waking up early, and they just can't do it and they're going to train themselves and they'll wake up with me to go to the gym for two weeks three weeks four weeks we'll get into mm -hmm. two months but then they just sort of slide back and they're just like i'm not that person ryan maybe i just have to accept it that just some people are larks some people are owls and some people are third birds right exactly exactly I, I, you know i've done that myself i mean i am you know i've I've, tr I've done exactly what your friends have tried to do which is to get up you know regularly try to get myself to get up earlier and it just doesn't really work for me i mean again i get up naturally you know usually between 7 and 7:30 it doesn't matter where i am day of the week that's when i get up so for me getting up at 5 that hurts man you know and I, and i'm not you know i'm not i'm not um I'm not at my best. And there's actually some really good research on, on exercise. I mean, you mentioned exercising earlier. You know, I've tried exercising earlier, and uh, it really doesn't 
it doesn't really work for me. But but on exercise and time of day, it's, again, it's another takeaway for your listeners mm-hmm. is that you should exercise in the morning if you want to. It's good for building a routine. It's good for losing weight. Um, and it's good for boosting mood because exercise gives us a mood boost. If you do it in the morning, you have it for the whole day. You don't sleep it away. Exercising in the late after late afternoon, early evening is beneficial, though, if you want to avoid injury, uh, if you want to enjoy it more. And that's it for me because I despise those morning workouts. I hate them. <laughs> but I work out in the afternoon, and I actually kind of enjoy it. I find it restorative. And the other thing um, is that uh, afternoon, early afternoon, early evening exercise. There's a lot of good evidence that it actually improves our performance. Uh, in part because of body temperature. We are literally more warmed up at that time of day. And there's some really intriguing evidence showing a disproportionate number of world records in in speed events, things like swimming, sprinting, speed skating, occur between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. local time. Wow, no kidding. So for everyone listening out there, Dan's just dropping his own golden nuggets there, and that's a part of the book. It's, I, I love it, Dan, because it's great, because you, you incorporate in the book, and there's such good, clean, quick takeaways, the Time Hacker's Handbook, you know, where you talk about, you know, what's the best time of day to work out, and you go through details in there, and, and I truly love that. It was a nice way to break up the book, just get some quick hits of information. Yeah, I'm, I'm, thank you for saying that, Ryan, because yeah. that's what I tried to do here. This is a book about science, but... Um, but I didn't want to leave it there, so I do have lots of takeaways and, and tips, but, but rooted in the science. And my view is, is that you know, smart readers, they want to know the research, but they also want something to do. Mm-hmm. And, and those two things reinforce each other. And having only one, just a book about science or a book about tips, is, is, is weak tea. And mm-hmm. what you really want is the combination. Yeah, and you really did a great job of that. And I'm not just puffing up your head, but I really enjoyed well, it. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. Because you get all that research, the stories, but then you get these quick hits of information. And like I said, I think it breaks up the book really nicely, and people will really enjoy that. So let's let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, you know, it's January 17th today when we're recording this. And January 1st recently passed us by something you and scientists call uh, a temporal landmark. So tell us what that is and why they're important. Yeah, so there's some really, really good research on this, too. So certain dates, as you say, of the year operate as temporal landmarks, and January 1 being the big kahuna of them all. Mm-hmm. And what these, what these dates do, they operate like physical landmarks. So, you know, let's say you're driving along and you need to know where to make a turn. You're kind of spacing out, but you're looking for a particular landmark so you know where to turn. And temporal landmarks are that way in time. Certain dates stand out from the march of forgettable uh, days, and, and they have this really interesting effect on our behavior. First of all, they get us to slow down. Second of all, they create this weird form of mental accounting. So if you think about a business, a business uh, will often up, you know, business at the beginning of a quarter, at the beginning of a year, will open up a fresh ledger. And during some of these temporal landmarks, uh, we will open up essentially a fresh ledger on ourselves that will banish old bad me to the past and open up a new account book for awesome new me. Um, and we tend to, and this is, this is a, a phenomenon called the fresh start effect, which was uh, discovered by uh, three researchers at then at Penn, two of them still at Penn, Katie Milkman, Jason Reese, Heng Chen Dai, who's now at UCLA. Um, and they found that certain dates are very good for us, you know, getting a fresh start. So not only January 1, but um, uh, the, uh, we're, we're going to be more likely to start a behavior change, more likely to sustain it mm-hmm. if we start, uh, say, a new diet on 
on a Monday rather than a Thursday, or the day after our birthday rather than the day before our birthday, or the first of the month rather than you know today, the seventeenth of a month. Interesting. Why? Why is it that our our brains are hardwired that way? Why is it that we look for those temporal landmarks to make big changes? Why are they so important? You know what? That's a great question. I'm not. I'm not actually sure about the why of it all. Um, I think it's because you know. I think it's because we we look. I mean, I, I give you my speculation on this. Sure. I, I think it's because we're looking for ways to kind of delude ourselves. Um, there's nothing special about a Monday versus a Sunday in right. the in the grand scheme of life. I mean, m- m- days of the week. You know, Mondays and Tuesdays and, you know, a seven-day week is something that human beings have invented. There's nothing natural about mm. that. I mean, a day obviously is natural because of, you know, the Earth is, um, the earth is, is spinning on its axis one full uh, ro- rotation each 24 hours or so. But um, I think whether we're looking for ways to um, kind of trick ourselves into behaving better, and, and this seems to be a very effective way to – this seems to be a very effective way to do that. And I think at some level it's also survival. Say, you know, if we walk around saying, oh, my gosh, I'm, is an adapt- if, if we didn't have an adaptation that said, oh, I can start again. I'm not permanently screwed because of my bad behavior. Um, you know, that kind of adaptation makes us a little bit better. If I say, oh, my God, I screwed up my diet on January 1, I don't have any chance of ever recovering, that would be pretty bad. That's right. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting because you see a lot of people, and you hear this a lot, especially we heard this 17 days ago, New Year knew me. And so it's just yeah. anything that I was, you know, December 31st beyond, that's, that was a different person. Now it's a new me. Well, I mean, it's just funny how we like to play these little tricks in our own brain and, and, and we like to do this with ourselves. But I mean, I could become a new me right now. Oh, right now I'm a new me. And right now I'm a new me. And, but we, for some reason, we like to use these temporal landmarks to help us, you know, frame up the future and what we can potentially be. And Hey, whatever it is that we have to use to drive change in our lives, you know, all the power to you. And I found that to be a very interesting piece that we all make use of in some form or another, um, myself included. You know, I use January 1st as my opportunity to do my strategic planning, uh, me to make my changes for the year. It's the next 12 months. I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. And you have to use whatever works for you. Absolutely so, right. So now, you know, for all those those of us who are in the middle of a project. We're in the middle of something. Maybe it's it's a project, maybe it's a workout program, writing a book, maybe we're writing a piece of software, whatever it is. We either hit what you call a spark that ignites our fire and gets us excited about the progress we've made and the future we're building. But for others, they hit a slump that brings them down. It demotivates them. When we hit midpoints, how, um, how can we have more sparks than slumps? And how do we turn a slump into a spark? Yeah, that's a, you got it exactly right about the two effects of midpoints. Um, sometimes they bring us down. So you see this in both well-being at midlife. Uh, mm. It tends to sag. It's not a midlife crisis, but it is a midlife slump. You see it in other kinds of behavior. Uh, other times, um, midpoints um, uh, cause us to uh, get in gear. Mm. And so there's some interesting research about project teams showing that you give a team a certain amount of time for a project, they'll begin by doing very, very little and they'll only get started in earnest at the exact midpoint of the huh. project. Um, so, you know, give a team 30, it's, it's amazing. You give a team 34 days to do something, <laughs> and you follow them, and they get started in earnest on day 17. Give them 11, they get started in earnest on day 6. I mean, it's freaky. Um, and so I guess the, the way to do, the, I guess the way to navigate it ourselves is the following. is Number one, 
we need to recognize midpoints. And until I did this research, they were, midpoints were really invisible to me. Um, but if you have something that has a beginning, a project, and you have something that has an end, it inevitably has a midpoint. And that midpoint is going to have an effect on you. And so you've got to be aware of those midpoints. You have to use them to, instead of feeling that slump, you know, it's like an alarm clock going off. You can either get out of bed or you can roll over. So when that midpoint alarm goes off, don't roll over, wake up. And one way to wake up is um, some really, really, is, is to pretend like you're a little bit behind at the midpoint. There's some great research from Jonah Berger at Penn, Devin uh, Pope at the University of Chicago about NBA games where they looked at the halftime scores at NBA games and found, not surprisingly, the teams ahead at halftime are more likely to win a game. Mm -hmm. Okay, not a shocker. They have more points. Um, but there's an exception to that. The teams that are down by one point at halftime are more likely to win than teams that are up by one point. That being down by one is equivalent to being up by two. I mean, it's weird. Wow. Um, and there's other experimental research showing that if you tell people at a midpoint that they're slightly behind, not a lot behind, slightly behind, it's very galvanizing. They perform better uh, in, that, in, that second, in that second half of whatever the enterprise is. So be aware of midpoints. Use them to wake up rather than roll over. And to do that, pretend you're a little bit behind. Mm. And again, it's very important insight. And in the book you talk, we're not going to go over all of it, but... Um, in the book, you talk about the beginning points, the midpoints, the end points, and just having the awareness of that to me was really important because sometimes we just we, we work on autopilot and we just don't think exactly. about we just don't think about this stuff. But to call it out, to show it to us, and for us to read it and to understand it, man, it just gives you power because it gives you that awareness of what do I usually do in the beginning, what do I do in the middle, what do I do in the end, and how can I optimize that? I truly love that. It was a great feature in the book. Thanks, thanks. So, so as we finish up here, let's talk about synchronous activities why are mm. synchronous activities beneficial to our health and when you're talking about that talk to us about the sinkers high yeah so there's some really really so i was one of the things i was intrigued by is how to synchronize in time so i looked at these guys in in mumbai india who deliver lunches i uh, looked at some rowing teams i looked at cor uh, choruses choral singers mm. and um what I found is that the effects of doing things in sync with other people is just remarkable. So if you look at, um, uh, let's just take choral singing as an example, singing, not just singing, but singing in a group. Mm. The evidence on this is just mind boggling to me. I'm still blown away by it. Uh, choral singing, you know, boosts people's mood. Uh, it can be a prophylactic against depression, but it even has a physiological benefit. If you take somebody's, um, draw somebody's blood before singing, measure their immunoglobulin levels, that is their immune response, mm -hmm. and then have them sing in a choir and then measure their immune, then draw blood again afterwards mm -hmm. and measure their immune response after singing in a group, their immune response is more robust after singing in a group. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's just, wow. you see greater response of cancer patients who sing in, who sing in groups. Um, and so there's something about... Um, synchronizing with other people that changes us at a very, very deep level. And, and one of them is uh, what you can think of as sinker's high. So if you, even if you look at, you know, think about something like rowing. Mm. Um, you know, when you have people row individually, let's say on a rowing machine or even in a single boat you mm -hmm. know, by themselves, um, their pain thresholds are a lot lower than if they row in a group. Wow. That is, synchronizing with other people raises their pain thresholds. 
Um, it's a very, and it also leads to this kind of exalted feeling where we feel a sense of purpose, we feel a sense of meaning, um, and amazingly, once if you do synchronous activities, and you see some really intriguing research from Oxford about kids, kids who do synchronous activities playing like clap and tap games or swinging in sync on swing sets, they do the synchronous activity immediately afterwards, they're much more likely to collect much more likely to exhibit helping behavior, much more likely to want to play with kids who don't look like them. So there's something about synchronizing with others that makes us feel good and do good, and it creates a kind of virtuous circle Mm. where when we feel good, we're better at thinking, and when we get better at thinking, we feel even better, which makes us more likely to do good deeds, and good deeds make us feel good, which enables... So there's a virtuous, really weird virtuous circle about synchronous activity. But this, this, this research on choral singing is just... As someone who doesn't sing solo or with others, I found it just <laughs> staggering. It's it's mind-boggling. And when I read that, I, yeah. found, I found it was very interesting because, I mean, number one, I'm, I'm not a singer, but I was like, man, I might even want to consider, you know, choral singing because if it's that beneficial to my health, um, yeah. you know, why, why not do that? But I found it interesting. You, you see too, things but... like that. You see things like that with dancing too, sort of group yeah. social dancing. And, and that, yeah, it's just, there's something, and, and I don't, and again, you asked a really intriguing question earlier about, you know, why do we have this fresh start effect? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the why is fairly elusive. Um, on this one, you know, the why, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, it, it's probably something in evolution where back on the savannah when we were evolving, our ability to synchronize in time with other people helped us survive. So mm-hmm. when it felt good, we were more likely to do it, and that helped us outrace a tape, you know, with our team, a saber-toothed tiger. Right. But um, the why beyond that is, I think, kind of elusive, but the, the evidence is just powerful. Yeah, and it's, when I, I look back to my own experiences when I was reading this piece, I look back at when I was training for, you know, world competitions in full contact martial arts. I would train by myself and I would push my heart rate up and I would be able to, to go and train as hard as I possibly could. But I would never train as hard as I possibly could on my own as opposed to when I was with mm. the team. When I was with the team, mm. I trained way harder. I pushed my body to mm. limits that I didn't think I had. And mm. other people, when you talk to them, they all say the same thing. So when you think about January 1st and people are joining those workout programs, people say, wow, I work out so much better with other people. I've pushed farther. I, I surprise myself. And I read this book and I say, there's something to that. There's something about this, you know, synchronous activities, things we're doing together. We're all rowing together. We're all running together. We're all punching the bag together. There's something about that. And I, I find it fascinating. Yeah, it, it is. And there's something about it that is for reasons that I don't fully understand, profoundly human. It's part of who human beings are. Yeah. Human beings somehow are built to synchronize. And why that is, again, that's above my pay grade. But mm-hmm. that it is seems very, very clear. Absolutely. Dan Pink, when? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Dan, it was just such a pleasure having you on the show. Like I mentioned to you when uh, we first got on the call, um, I read many of your books beforehand, so having you on the show, um, it was a real treat, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great treat for everyone out there in uh, Cut the Crap Podcast Nation. But um, if anyone wants to follow you along while you're doing your book tour as you're talking more about uh, when, how can they follow you, and um, how can they get in touch with you if they wanted to? Well, first, Ryan, it was a real treat for me to be with you, talk to you about this fascinating topic and all your great questions. If, if your listeners want to find out more, they can just go to my website, which is danpink, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com, www.danpink.com. Perfect. Nice and easy. Well, Dan, thank you so much again for making the time, my friend. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, my friends. There we have it. That's Dan Pink. When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. 
Talk about a kick-ass episode. The amount of takeaways that we got from this episode are amazing. You can put a lot of these into practice. For me personally, I love the Nappuccino. I'm definitely going to start taking advantage of the Nappuccino and uh, encourage a lot of you to share a lot of this great information with your peers, your colleagues, and um, your family members, whoever else you believe needs to hear this information. Such great takeaways from this. And thank you to Dan Pink for coming on the show. It was uh, truly, truly a treat to get Dan on the show. If you like this episode, then please go online, rate and review the show. Give me a ranking, give me a review. Once you do that, take a screen capture of it, send it to podcast at ryancalajuri.com, and I'll make sure you get entered in the draw this quarter for a brand new prize. I don't know what the prize is, whatever it is, it's going to be over $1,000, so why not, right? Once you're entered in the draw once, you're entered in the draw forever. All right, now before I let you guys go, last week... I put the inspiration piece, how I always end off every episode with an inspiration piece. I put it on its own because I want to have an opportunity to talk to everybody. But to me, it just seemed a little wasteful to create another episode out of it. So I'm going to just extend the closing of every podcast episode where I'm going to have an opportunity to talk a little bit about that and then share the piece with you. So this week we have a piece and I'm not ashamed to say it. We have a piece from The Holiday. And to me, this movie always struck a chord with me always touch my heart. I know people might laugh and they say, come on, man, the holiday? Yeah, the holiday. You know, the movie with Jude Law, Cameron Diaz, Kate Winslet, Jack Black, it's always played around the holidays, obviously. And to me, just the score in the movie, the story, just everything about it, I absolutely love. And there's just one scene in the movie where uh, Kate Winslet, her character Iris, is talking to, um, I believe his name is Eli Wallach. Uh, In the, the movie, his name is Arthur. And she's having this conversation with this old individual, Arthur. And he's been there, done that. And she's talking about her problems that she's having. And he offers her a great piece of advice. And I wanted to share that with you all because to me, it's such an important reminder in terms of how we live our lives. The advice he gives her provides some perspective. And when I listened to it, it provided me with some perspective and how I was looking at my life. And it kind of gave me this bird's eye view of my life. How am I acting? Am I the person that Arthur says I should be? Or am I acting like the person that Iris is acting like? You'll know what I mean after you give it a listen. But to me, it's absolutely profound. It's a very quick bit of advice, but it's something that I hope you never forget. And I hope it's something that you carry with you throughout your life so that you act accordingly and you make sure that you act according to who you truly are. In any case, I'm going to play this piece. I hope you enjoy. I hope you have a fantastic weekend, and I will definitely catch you back here next week. Take care, everybody. I love you guys. Christmas vacation, and on top of that, spend Saturday night with an old cocker like me. Well, I, I just wanted to get away from the people I see all the time. Well, not, 
all the people. One person. I wanted to get away from one guy. Her next boyfriend, who just got engaged and forgot to tell me. Sorry. So he's a schmuck. As a matter of fact, he is a huge schmuck. How did you know? He let you go. This is not a hard one to figure out. Iris, in the movies we have leading ladies and we have the best friend. You, I, I can tell, are leading lady. But for some reason, you're behaving like the best friend. You're so right. You're supposed to be the leading lady of your own life, for God's sake. Arthur, I've been going to a therapist for three years. She's never explained anything to me that well. That was brilliant. Brutal, but brilliant. Thank you.